0: Good evening everyone, good to see you all here this evening in terms of like in all of you. So that's really nice. The singing tonight was absolutely fabulous, wonderful, thank you so much for the singing uh, so well. I know that you sing so well even with your masks on but sometimes even without them you sound, without them you sound that much more better or I guess maybe that much more clear. Maybe I should stop talking about that and move on to the lesson. So what does this description um, describe? Shattered windows, a dilapidated roof, shingles falling off, paint that is peeling, grass that is overgrown, shrubs, shrubs that are not maintained. Well, as you think about those things, those are all signs of a house that has lost its life. There probably was a time when that house was filled with the laughter of a young family with uh, children running around and, and playing. Or maybe it was a house that an elderly couple lived in where a lot of fond memories were made and a lot of comfort was, was had, but now it stands uninhabited, a discarded shell of what it once was. A house that becomes life that is like that is, to some degree, uh, tragic. But what is even more tragic is a church that once was known as having life has lost its love. That would be tragic in and of itself. And so could that be a description of a of the life of a Christian? Could that be the description of maybe a, a congregation of God's people? Well this is the description of the church in Ephesus. A church that had lost its first love. A church that maybe was still socially responsible. Uh, Maybe they were, you know, accurate when it came down to knowing the truth. Maybe they were evangelistic about uh, things, but something had gone amiss. And so Jesus writes them a letter. It's not a long letter. It's a very short letter. But in that very short letter, he has a lot to say to them that really would cause them to stop and to pause and hopefully to look at their, their, their lives. The other thing is, is that Jesus has not given up on them. Nor does he give up on any church. He's always given them a chance to rebound or a chance to repent, a chance to return, a chance to uh, remember. So if you'll open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, we'll be reading verses 1 down through uh, verse uh, 7. Revelation 2 verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men, and that you put to test those who call themselves apostle, and they are not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have left your first love. Remember therefore from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is is in the paradise of God. So the Spirit writes to the church in Ephesus and it talks to them about the things that are good and the things which are not so good. The church in Ephesus was a congregation that was found most likely by the apostle Paul along with Priscilla and Aquila. If you were to look at Acts the 18th chapter beginning going down through that narrative beginning in verses 18 through about 19 and then from verses 24 through 26. There you see that Paul comes to Ephesus. He leaves the Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus. He then goes to the synagogue. He comes back and he leaves Ephesus and goes away to Sincrea later to return. But Priscilla and Aquila are left there. And and while they're left there, it says that a man by the name of Apollos was mighty in the scripture or eloquent in speech. And he was proclaiming the word of God and he was proclaiming it with, like I said, elegance as well as boldness. But he didn't have the complete picture. So it says that Priscilla and Aquila pulls him aside and teaches him more accurately concerning the way. As you move into the 19th chapter, Paul comes back from Sincrea, and now he is in Ephesus. And there he finds a number of disciples of John who have been baptized into John's baptism, so he teaches them more perfectly, and they are baptized uh, into Christ. The result is that Paul sees the church in Ephesus as almost a darling church. I mean, he loves the church of of Ephesus. In fact, he spent two and a half years at the school of Tyrannus. The school of Tyrannus is not like a school that you would think of as in maybe a college or a university or anything like that. It's probably more of a place where people would meet for the purpose of discussing philosophy, religion, along with a number of other things. Paul stays there for two and a half years and there he proclaims the, the gospel, and he does so with great success in the church of, of Ephesus. So much so that Paul will eventually send Timothy, his young protege, and Timothy will stay there, and he'll become the evangelist of Ephesus. Ephesus, Ephesus will mature. It'll have its own elders. It'll have its own deacons. But it'll also have its own, own problems. So Ephesus, like I said, is a darling of, of Paul. The church in Ephesus is located, if you can see that small map up there, it's lo- located at the mouth of the, the Keister River on the Aegean Sea, but it's there that it is, is found there. Ephesus was the chief city of the province of that area, the Roman uh, province. It had a lot of things going uh, for her. She was one of the larger cities in the eastern Mediterranean she exceeded over a quarter of a million, or 250,000 in population. She was the home of the Roman province. She was known for a, a number of things. First was that of commercial trade, which meant that she was a melting pot of, or a smelting pot of people that came from all over the world would pass through Ephesus. So it was a place of, of incredible commercial trade, which Paul, I think, strategically would have chosen Ephesus simply because the the word of God could go easily out of that place, that it would trade very easily from Ephesus. Not only that, she was known for her religion. In Ephesus, there they worship Artemis, which was uh, a a Greek goddess, or uh, Diana, if you were a Roman. Uh, They really went all out for Artemis or Diana. In fact, so much so that they would build a huge temple to her of which over 24,500 people could sit. It was known as one of the seventh wonders of the world in that day. A huge place, 342 feet by 163 feet. It was bigger than a, or larger than a football stadium. This was a temple dedicated to the worship of Diana, a religion, uh, a temple known to her, uh, that was given to her that was known for its decadence, for prostitution, both male and female prostitution. Thousands of priests, and priests served at the temple of Diana. And so uh, Ephesus was known for this, and yet it's in this place, this place of commercial trade, this place of great religion, that the church in Ephesus was established and had her her being. Now, because Ephesus was such a large uh, city, uh, Ephesus became large as well in terms of the church. It was third only to Jerusalem and to the church of Antioch. And so in this time, Ephesus uh, was leaving a huge mark in the religious world, and certainly when it comes down to Christianity. And yet when it came down to Ephesus, Ephesus had begun to move away from God. There were things that were very commendable uh, about her, but there were some things that were not so great about her. But she was never seen as a dead church. She wasn't seen as a church that was without any kind of hope. She had a number of positive attributes, but she had some things that Jesus condemned and, and, and told that congregation that unless you correct these things, then I'm going to remove your lampstand. And that should cause just cold chills to go within any group of believers. Notice what he said in verse one, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance. Well, we learned what the seven stars represent. The seven stars represent the seven Messengers. Some translations use seven angels, but I think I shared with you that it was the idea of that of being a messenger. And if you were in my class on Wednesday evenings and we've talked about the book of Revelation, I said so. oftentimes Revelation says this, but it means this. And I think this is the case that is going on here. When you talk about lampstands, you're talking about it, the church itself. And here it says that Jesus is walking among the lampstands. What that means is, is that he is a present reality within the, within the church, and he knows what we are about. He knows what makes us, us, us tick. He is the protector. He's the sustainer of the church, but he knows the church very well. Think about now our lives to think that Jesus knows every thought, he knows every intention, he knows every direction in life, he knows your every action, he knows your reason behind every action, he knows you well. That in itself is sobering. Seldom do I stop and think about life in that matter or to think about our congregation in, in that in that matter or that manner. And yet here it says that Jesus is walking among the church and he knows what's going on in the church in Ephesus. And so the question we would ask, well, do, you know, as Christians, do we rely on him? Do we rest in him? Do we respond to him in obedience? Are we, you know, living above board as those who are the children of God who make up the church here in meridian. And as he walks among our congregation, what does he see? Does he see the things that are strong? Does he see the things that are weak within it? What does he see when he looks at us? When you go down through uh, the analysis of the Ephesian church, Jesus recommend, uh, has commendations for the congregation. One of the things that he says about her, he says that you have this strength, that is incredible. I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men, and that you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. So Jesus says, I know your deeds, I know your patience, I know your endurance, I know what's going on, I know about your your toil. The toils it It actually means the idea of strenuous or or weary labor. So he says, so I know how hard it must be for you to live in Ephesus among a great city of pagan religion and idolatry and the things that go on. And yet you toil well, you are you are persevering. You are enduring well what is going on in that place. And instead of huddling in your small group, he says, you are standing well against the city and against the things that are going on in that, that city. And when he uses the word patience, it comes from this word hupomone, and it's a word that means that it's not a grin and bear it kind of thing, just kind of hang in there and stick it out. Uh, they are outside of themselves, and they are moving forward, and they are making a difference and an impact in that city. And there are victories as a result of it. So, because of their, their, them, uh, they resisted. This action or labor and patience was commended uh, by the Lord. One of the examples that he says, "You don't tolerate false teachers, or those who call themselves apostles." Think about Ephesus being a commercial trade center, in which it's easy for people to come through and pass through which means there's a lot of men that could be hucksters that are selling religion for for gain, and they would pass through and try to make inroads into the church there. And it says that the church in Ephesus, they did not put up with false teachers. They identified those who claimed to be apostles but were false apostles. And to that, that was a credit to them. If you've ever been in a third world country such as Africa, then oftentimes men will just, you know, if you can't make a living, then oftentimes they would just take and put a shingle out and say the right Reverend Joseph Ikambe, you know, and they just start a church. They may not know anything about what the scriptures say, but they can just start a church and just claim to be someone that they're maybe really not. When it comes down to their knowledge of the scriptures and what the church is supposed to look like and how the church is supposed uh, to act, well, they couldn't get away with that with the church in Ephesus. They knew the book and were able to stand against those things that were, were uh, there. They could see it, if, if you will. In fact, over in second Timothy, the second chapter in verse 15, their Paul says to Timothy to tell the congregation to to study the word in order that you might handle accurately that truth. That is so important when it came down to how Paul viewed that. And remember where Timothy is, he's in Ephesus. And so he says, study to show yourselves approved unto God as a workman that does not need to be ashamed of the word or the gospel, but one who handles accurately the word of, of truth. And so Paul wasn't warning them about you know, non believers are not, he's warning them about believers. An example of this, keeping your finger at Revelation 2, turn back, if you will, to Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, you remember Paul is saved and he comes to the island of Miletus and he calls for the Ephesian elders to come uh, to him. And as you get down to verse 28, here's what he says he says, speaking to the Ephesian elders, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of God, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will rise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that Night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each of you or each one of you with tears. He's talking about that time at the school of Tyrannus. I was there almost three years. And I, and I told you about these things. And now he's warned them. And so he's not warning them against non-believers coming in. He's warning them about believers that passed through. And, and what he says of the Ephesians, he says, you did it really well. No one was able to sneak in and come in under... <clears throat> Under any kind of falsity, you know, you was able to identify who those uh, people are, that they were able to test the, the, the uh, spirits. Another was her perseverance. This word perseverance and endurance had to do with faithfulness. Notice he says, you persevered not for your sake, but for my name'sake. You held to the truth for my uh, name'sake. You hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Notice it didn't say they hated the Nicolaitans. You hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Who are the Nicolaitans? The truth is is we're not really sure. We're not sure everything that goes on with these people. Not a lot was written about them except to know that these people here uh, they practiced Christianity and idolatry at one and the same time. They probably had something to do with the temple of Diana were well, at the same time claiming to be uh, Christians. They believed things like, well, they taught in order to master sin, one must know the whole range of it through experience. Jude talked about that, where he says there are those who take the grace of God and turn it into license, or into licentiousness, or lasciviousness, or fleshly deeds. And so these Nicolaitans must have been of that that kind, and and. Jesus says, you're able to know who they are. You've hated their deeds, just as I have hated their deeds. And so he talks about how they are able to uh, stay uh, strong. And then Jesus has some uh, condemnation to say to them. You know, you've know, you done some things really well, but there's something that you have, have done. And, and one of it is, he says, that you have left your first love. So what does that mean? What does it mean to leave your first love? Over the years, it, Well, I've been in the church, I've heard people discuss this. What does it mean to, that they have left their first love? And the answer to that is that we're not really sure. We really don't know. But I can tell you this, the Ephesians would have. They, that church there would have known what that first love was that they had left behind. And so there are a few possibilities. One of the possibilities of leaving their first love, it could be, that the love that Jesus is talking about was the, the badge by which Christians should be known. That hallmark that sets us apart from those around us. And that, of course, is, is love itself that he called a new commandment. There over in John, the 13th chapter, he says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you. So ought you to love one another. But they were so busy, I think, probably so busy looking for these false teachers or these false apostles, some said a false apostle under every bed, that they were so concerned about truth that they forgot how to love each other, and so they were out of balance. I think you know what I'm talking about when I say balance. A church has to be balanced. Not only does it need to know the truth, but it needs to know how to love one another. Or you can't just love one another without... There being truth there, there has to be a balance of both of those found within the body of the believers. And so Paul may, or Peter, or Jesus may have been talking about this idea that the Ephesians have put so much emphasis on doctrinal purity that they forgot how to stay in love with each other. Another possibility of first love may have been the, or, the original love of this enthusiasm that they had when they first became Christians, this excitement that was there. And now that excitement, that initial love that they experienced had, had waned. And as one person said, the honeymoon was over for them and that was down to hard life. And so they, they left that initial feeling of what it's like to be in love with the, the Lord and so they're saying he, you left your first love. The last possibility uh, may suggest that they no longer have any love for Christ at all rather uh, it, it may mean that the quality and the intensity of their love for Christ had, had weakened. It would be like a husband and wife that are, are married. And they've been married a long time and they've allowed their, their love for each other, the intensity, the romance of that love to kind of burn out or to grow cold over time. And so maybe that's what's going on here. They've been for so long battling and fighting within uh, the city of Ephesus itself and trying to maintain truth and fight off false teachers and, and false uh, apostles that their love for each other just began to grow cold and began to to wane. It could be all three of those, I don't I don't know. But we would know, you know, if we as a church did not love as as we once did. And so we might ask ourselves, was there ever a time when our congregation when we had a deeper love for one another? Where we're where it was more intense. Whether it was more, When it was more exciting, has there ever been a time for us or maybe for, uh, for you? So Jesus, he's going to give them some correction and counsel. And the first thing he says is to remember. In fact, he says, remember from where you have fallen. So how do you do that? Well, maybe they recall the time when they can almost you know, point out, here's where we began to slip. Here was a time that we began to not be the congregation that loved each other the way we once loved each other. And they can almost pinpoint that. Or maybe it could be the idea that um, they should should keep in mind um, the pit from which they had come out of. The sin that you once were entrapped in that you had dug yourself down and now you've come out of that. And how exciting that was to leave behind that sinful practice and then to start going the way of, of God. So maybe that's what he's talking about, remember. I kind of tend to lean towards the first possibility. The next one he says is to repent. The word repent means to turn back, to change your mind, to go back. Without true repentance, without a 180-degree turn, then they're going to find it to be very difficult. And so he says you need to have a change, a change of mind, a change of heart, and then a change of action. So he tells them to return. Remember where you have fallen from and repent and return to that place. And and what's beautiful about that is that Jesus is telling him it's never too late to do that. It's never too late to take an assessment of your life or to allow the scriptures to tell you what your life is like and then to go back. That's the love of God that he has uh, for, for us. He says to listen. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the question for us would be, are we listening to the voice of God? Are we listening to God's Voice. Are we willing to do what he says that is necessary in order for our relationship for, to him to uh, warm up, to warm up our hearts towards, towards God? And then he gives a promise and a commitment. He says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He'll grant us heaven I- itself. And so what's going on here is the, is, is the apostle, or, or that is Jesus, is asking the church in Ephesus to look at themselves, to look at their weaknesses. And my guess is, is like I said, Ephesus already knew what their weakness was. They know what their strengths were. But they also know what their weaknesses were, and Jesus told them what it was And now.